Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to our very first Sandbox podcast, a conversation about life and what's trending through a lens of faith and creativity. My name is Dave Berg. And I'm Chris Roberts. This is episode one. Uh, maybe marginally better than another episode one you may or may not be familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> maybe this is like a jar jar free zone, right? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> What's going on with Sandbox Cooperative, Chris? Yeah, so for those of you who may not know, uh, maybe again, this is again, this is our uh, first Sandbox podcast. So for those of you who maybe don't know, um, Sandbox Cooperative is this quarterly event that we host. We have a live interactive conversation on a range of topics. Uh, anything with a sort of faith to life conversation, try to bridge that gap. Uh, so we welcome guests to talk about things like your life purpose, the way we deal with time and money. Um, issues of suffering and illness, and pretty big social issues like human trafficking as well. Uh, we're looking forward to our next event, which will be on September 27th with Science Mike McHarg. Science Mike McHarg. Tell us about Mike. What's going on with him? Yeah, so Science Mike, uh, he'll be talking with us a bit about science, faith, doubts, uh, and knowing God in the midst of all this. For those who may feel like they don't fit in a faith community uh, because of some of these doubts, He'll give some practical ways to enter into and participate with that faith community, um, despite those doubts and uncertainty, but also without ignoring them. So one of the things I've really come to appreciate about Mike over the past few months of listening to his podcast is that he doesn't believe in checking your brain at the door. He brings this uh, brilliant mind with regard to uh, issues of science, uh, brings a lifetime of, of faith and, and wrestling with faith. He incorporates doubt and brings some uh, pretty uh, pretty insightful uh, views to the table. And so I can't wait to hear more from Mike. If you want to check out what Mike has to say, you can check out his website at mikemccarg.com. You can check theliturgists.com. And we have it all on our Sandbox Cooperative uh, website at sandboxcooperative.com as well. Again, the goal of this podcast, it's a conversation about life, what's trending through the lens of faith and creativity. What we want to do is bridge the gap between our Sandbox Cooperative live events with this ongoing conversation. We can keep things going uh, from what we talk about at our live events and uh, continue to build our audience and build this conversation uh, across, across the, the weeks and months to, to come. So for this first episode, uh, today's topic, we're going to look at this idea of secular and sacred. What makes something sacred and what makes something secular? Um, these are kind of often pitted against each other. Uh, we're maybe wondering, is there really a divide? Is there a difference? Or is the difference something that, that we've created? Uh, before we get there, though, uh, we're going to start with something that we're, we're going to try to do each time. Uh, let's start with some trending topics and news stories. Uh, these are our thoughts on the things moving the needle in pop culture and news as dictated to us through the marketing algorithms of the interwebs. Algorithms and the interwebs are big, big words. Uh, I just know one word, and that's Yahoo. <laughs> Yahoo? <laughs> Yahoo. That's the one word you that's know the still. One, and, 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 and MySpace. I thought you were going to say selfie. Selfie. No. Well, actually, yes. Check this out. I was looking at... Uh, <laughs> 
looking at trending topics, and one one of the ones that came up was this the story, and I looked it came up through Yahoo about this guy. He's an Alaska-based artist. His name's J.K. Keller. He has taken a selfie every day from the same angle for 16 years, beginning in October of 1998. Now. How many selfies did you take in 1998? Um, if I took any selfies in 1998, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that the camera was hitting either my forehead or all of the stuff behind me, or it was up my nose. I don't think I was successful at any of these. Not not any good angles, right? This dude was taking selfies when selfies weren't cool. But okay, so here's the thing: he's compiled now over 5,000 photos into a time lapse video. It is more than three minutes long. You can check it out if you go to YouTube and, and, and look up Living My Life Faster. So he was 22 years old when he started this back in, in 1998, and he wanted to show how his face and hair changes over the course of his life. Now, according to this story in Yahoo, it says that this project actually started out out of spite. Apparently, this guy's girlfriend at the time mocked him for his purchase for what she considered to be a, a camera that was way too expensive. And she sarcastically asked, are you going to use this thing every day? Do not challenge a dude on a mission. <laughs> he set out and totally proved her wrong. And he's continuing to do I mean, he's got to let this go. I mean, he's got to channel his inner Elsa or something like that. But Keller, he has no plans to stop taking daily selfies, and he pledges to do this until the day he dies. Wow. Yeah. You know what's just crazy about that? Like, the the ability that we have to document something like that now, yeah. um, and, and what kind of things that turns into, I mean, thinking about, like, how to document aging like that and all those sorts of things, just fascinating what we're able to kind of reflect on differently than we were in the past. It is, and it's to watch that video is to see him morph real time. But this isn't. I mean, this is this is the real thing. The blemishes on his face, the, his hair, everything changes. And if you go look at the first picture and the last pictures I did, uh, it, it's dramatic. It's a. It's truly a beautiful and changing and evolving piece of art. Uh, but it also does say something about this selfie culture that we. That, that we live in, we're fascinated with the mirror, right? I mean, we're staring into this thing and, and we become a living canvas uh, of sorts. We are constantly curating our image and we become fascinated uh, with a level of introspection that is, it's at the same time, extremely personal and also completely superficial in, in, in many ways. And, and I think that it, somehow it shows through this guy's project. I, you know, I, it's, it's beautiful. It's superficial. It's extremely personal. Uh, it's, it's all of those things, and it's in, the, in remarkable ways. So, so I've got uh, two pieces of tech news from last week or so. I'm a little bit of a tech nerd, so these will probably come up every now and then. Uh, two things that are seemingly unrelated, but I think are going to long-term have a significant impact. Uh, so first, Microsoft just announced Windows 10 available this summer. Uh, I've been running the Insider Preview for a few weeks. It's awesome. It's easy to use if you like Windows 7. It makes Windows 8 look better. It's not bad. Uh, so also, Intel launches Thunderbolt 3. It's their super fast connectivity interface. Doubles the speed of the previous version. Uh, for those of you who know tech things, this is 40 gigabytes per second, which is just unreal. Uh, the thing about it, the design is identical to its competitor, USB-C. 
was starting to appear on smartphones. It was uh, that weird connector that nobody knew what to do with on the new <laughs> MacBook. Um, so here's the thing that I think is interesting about that. Our lives are being massively transformed by technology and the way that we consume information. Um, I mean, on surface level, it's just another operating system. It's another way to plug things into your computer. Um, but like you were talking about, not even 10 years ago, the selfie wasn't a thing. What was that last Christmas that the, the selfie stick was a big deal? Uh, that was like six months ago. The selfie stick was a the thing. The selfie stick, yes. <laughs> so, um, and it didn't change until somebody put a, a camera on the side, same, same side of the phone that our screen was on, right? Mm -hmm. And then everything went crazy. Um, I get really excited about these changes. I wonder what new experiences uh, and ways of interacting we're creating that we don't even know yet. Um, and I think that that goes so far beyond just these two kind of pieces of technology. I think that's just a representation of it. Um, you know, we're recording this podcast in my living room, not a, not a high-end studio, because uh, we don't have to be in a high-end studio. Um, right, we can right. we can be here because um, the technology is smaller, it's cheaper, it's easier to access. Uh, we even have technology to put it on the internet and give it to everybody. Um, so I just kind of wonder, you know, as some of these things are continually changing, um, what kinds of ways does that change how we communicate with each other and, and those sorts of things? It, it changes how we communicate with each other. It changes the way we think. It changes the way that we interact with the world. It changes... I. I Look, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't study the human brain. I don't know anything about that, but I, I've got to believe that it's changing how we're hardwired uh, to, to, to interact with each, not only with each other, uh, but, but with the, with the world. It's how, how we process information, both externally and internally. It, and, it, and w once you do that, we relate in different ways. I think about the way my, my young daughters use and interact uh, with, with technology uh, as complete digital natives, uh, in ways that I can't even, I can't even do, and I and I use this stuff all the time. So it's 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 a fascinating thing, and and these changes, they're so incremental that we don't often get a chance to step back and and take a a look at the whole. So Dave, there was uh, one more article that you were looking at. Tell us about it. Yeah, I was checking out this hashtag that was trending just recently. It was. It was not my America. It was uh, being used as a form of counter-protest by the campaign to take on hate. Apparently, there's this biker gang of anti-Islam protesters that were demonstrating outside an Islamic community center in Phoenix, Arizona. The armed uh, bikers held up racist and neo-Nazi signs and, and yelled threats against the people who were worshiping at the mosque. Now, now technically... They had the right to protest there according to the First Amendment of the Constitution. And, and this I thought was amazing. The leader of the, of the mosque even defended, publicly defended their right to protest. But here's something that surprised me. When I saw this story, I thought it was going to be yet another news item in a string of, these, of just bigoted awfulness that we've been seeing in, in recent months and, and years but it was actually the counter-protest that has produced such uh, um, immense energy and, and goodwill. Local Christian pastors, Jewish community, people with no faith affiliation whatsoever, they were joined in solidarity with their Muslim neighbors, uh, both locally and on social media. The hashtag on Twitter and Facebook branded the protesters for, for what they were, bigots and racists, and they did not let them off the hook. 
Now, it's not going to change the overwhelming tide of hate speech and action in this country. But for once, actually in, in, in recent years, it seems like we're taking a step in the right direction. Uh, Dean Obadala, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He works for CNN. He quoted uh, Martin Luther King Jr. when he said, uh, this is the quote, History will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamor of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. And I feel like this was an incremental step in, in, in the right direction. We have so so much further to go, but mm-hmm. for once, uh, you know, and there's all kinds of things that we can, tr- can critique and should critique about the way the news media covered it, uh, lack of action in other circles, but I, I, I was seeing some positive there. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, there's, and I think fairly so, but the, the media kind of gets a bad rap all the time for really kind of lifting up the negative stories, the, the right. difficult stories. Um, so to lift up something that's positive, that, you know, the positive aspect of this is is amazing. It's, it's really great to start seeing some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in particular with this, with this topic, um, I think sometimes it's it's good like we always feel like we need to have another enemy and and in the last few years uh it has happened to be muslim people um mm. and and mostly unfairly uh you mm. know very minimal amount of muslims in the world are actually the type of people that that we're afraid of and 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 feel like we we are uh, kind of at odds with um so it's really fascinating to see mm. that flip and to see um not only that kind of response publicly at that event but also you know the way the media has turned that around uh it's it's really nice to see that transition happen and begin to happen yeah i hope it continues i hope it continues for sure so those are just a few of the stories that we've been looking at in the last few days Uh, we'll look at a few more uh, in the coming weeks and share with those with you for our next podcast Uh, again with uh, the sandbox podcast our goal is to look at issues of life and what's trending through a lens of faith and creativity uh, and to try to continue that conversation that we're having uh, between our larger sandbox cooperative events. And today, again, we're looking at sacred and secular. What is it? What's the definition of the two? How do they play together? Are they separate? Uh, what do we do with that? Uh, I think one of the things that we can maybe start with is let's define sacred and secular before we get too far into the conversation. You know, you're talking about technology earlier, and I've got the Google on my computer. You too? I've got the, wow. yeah, I've got the Google. And I looked at the Google, and it said uh, definitions for sacred. And, and this was said, sacred, connected with God or the gods, or dedicated to a religious purpose and so deserving veneration. That's sacred. Secular denoting attitudes, activities, or other things that have no religious or spiritual basis. So a lot of times when I hear the word sacred and secular used in conversation, it happens to be around music. It's one area that we we tend to hear this conversation happening, and and it it looks like it goes back for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, Martin Luther, the famous 16th century church reformer, once said, why should the devil get all the good tunes? And in the borrowed and stole popular Renaissance music and drinking songs for his new hymns. 
I'm not a musician, but Chris, you are, and you've done all types of music, uh, music that people would call uh, sacred, music that people would call secular. What would you say about this? Um, I think I'd, I'd kind of turn that around for a second, uh, because the initial question that I think I have as a reaction to that is, what do we do with beauty that we find is reflective of the things that we experience and talk about in religious life? Uh, what do we do with that if it's created by a secular artist or if it is a quote unquote secular piece of art? Um, what do we do with that if we're not willing to bridge that gap between the two? Um, I think, I mean, I believe in, in, in this God who is present and opening us up to the world around us, regardless of which of this, these boxes we think we're in um, or which boxes we think our experiences are in. Uh, so for example, God isn't only expressed in Christian music. And I don't think it's impossible for God to be expressed in secular music. To me, it seems that there are any number of places where we have the ability to learn and see things from other people, uh, but we have to be willing to not separate out based on kind of these predefined boundaries. Uh, Otherwise, we aren't able to see that and learn that. Um, And when I think about music that's sacred to me, there's just this huge flood of songs and artists that come to mind. Um, And there are all sorts of songs that some on the radio now, ones I listened to growing up, those sorts of things they actually have more meaning to me than a lot of religious songs. I have those two, but they all kind of connect with different points of my experience. Uh, I think that's because they were able to speak to me in the experience I was having at the time. Uh, And I think to discount that because of this kind of assumed category, we have a tendency to maybe miss a piece of the world and the reality that is around us. Yeah, I think the categories are kind of of our own making in, in some ways because when you were just saying that it made me think of music that's been powerful for me the, over the years and it was just I don't know a, a week ago or so we're at home we're cooking dinner we're grilling I put on some music and I put on Ben Folds 5 Jackson Cannery like circa 1995 or whatever and that to me if there is sacred music that is sacred music. And I'm sure Ben Folds would be He'd going, love what? to hear that. <laughs> so, no, it, it's sacred music to me. Why? Because that mu- that was the music we were listening to, my wife and I were listening to when we started dating. That CD, that was the, that was the soundtrack of the soundtrack of our love. <laughs> <laughs> it was the soundtrack of, of, of those just formative that formative time in our relationship and and how amazing. So it just took us back. I put it on and uh, and we were listening to it and and my wife was like, "How did you select that?" And just it was just a blast from the past. And so it was it was fun to listen to, but it was just filled absolutely filled with meaning. And it makes me think about like songs that you sing in church. Think about. Christmas Eve, it's silent night. And when you f- sing that, it connects you with times that you've sung it throughout your life, whether you were, maybe you were Christmas caroling, maybe you're at your grandma's church sitting in an uncomfortable pew, but you're sitting next <laughs> to your grandma who you love and she's no longer with you. It's just filled with meaning. It's the same type of stuff that that's just filled up. I, I've, I've heard it said that you can put a drop into a bucket uh Every time you sing a song or every time you hear a song and pretty soon that, that bucket starts to overflow because there's just so much in it. And I think that's part of what makes it sacred, whether it's Ben Folds 5 or, or Silent Night. Yeah, I think it's it's part of that reminder and that kind of pulling you back 
that uh, that gives it some of that sacred power. And and if it's not, um, at the very least, it's it's that you're reminded of a sacred time through that through that piece of music or through that experience. Uh, I think one of the images that's powerful for me uh, is that is that for us as Christians, we gather weekly for worship. And one of the things that we do is we gather around the the communion table around a shared meal. And in that, in the time that we get together, we have this constant reminder of kind of this collectively shared story of faith. Um, and we, we think about the way that that impacts our lives and what we learn and take from that. Every week we come together, we're refreshed, we're reminded of these things, and then we leave. Uh, and in that time, we're kind of brought back and, and, and it centers us. And I think that just kind of like what you were saying with Ben Folds, you know, I think that, that good music, regardless of where it comes from, does that for us. It, it puts us in connection with those sacred moments or it becomes a sacred moment itself. Um, and sometimes it's not even good music. Uh, sometimes it's just the music that happened to be playing when that thing happened. It mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't have to be a certain type of music or quality of music or any of those sorts of things. Um, but I think that reminder is part of the power of music. And to me, that's a hugely sacred experience. So music is this, this powerful thing. And as a musician, I experience something really unique when I play and create music, um, particularly when I play with other people. Uh, but it also has profound emotional and psychological effects on the listener. Uh, part of that's in the, the reminder the, and the ability of music to express things that are really difficult to explain. Um, in the same way that these important, unique things are expressed differently in music, I think that's what we mean when we call something sacred. Uh, even though we often put different words to it, I think we can call it the same thing. Uh, so I wonder, you know, how much is it just like, what are we seeing and, and what are we seeing in that? Um, I was just listening to a band that I haven't listened to in a really long time, a band called Brand New. Uh, and they have a song that some of the words are, well, Jesus Christ, I'm alone again. So what did you do those three days you were dead? Because this problem is going to last more than the weekend. Um, absolutely one of my favorite lines mm-hmm. in all of music. Uh, because it speaks to this reality that even sometimes when we hear the Easter story and the story of re- resurrection and, and good news, it feels like this longing of pain that continues beyond and and even though we have this kind of good news story um it kind of asks this question like what did you even do because mm-hmm. i'm still feeling that after the fact it, to me that's one of the more powerful questions that i've that i've heard it's a validation of of real struggle and and kind of takes the question of suffering head on um but but they're not a christian band and they don't fit in the christian category and yet I'd argue they're asking a much more powerful question than a lot of what's assumed as, as Christian music. I think so much of this is about what we see as sacred, uh, and it can be said in, in many different different ways. I don't think it's limited to the categories and divide that we've we've kind of placed around it. So more and more, I'm seeing that it's a lens, right? We can look at something as sacred or secular, but I think if we look at it, things through this sacred lens we start to experience the deeper meaning behind things. In some ways, this is kind of a crazy leap here, but it reminds me of Louis C.K. when this classic uh, clip when he was on Conan O'Brien's show. At one point he says, everybody tells me there are horror stories when they fly. They come up to him and and they're saying things like, it was the worst day of my life, man. First of all, we didn't board for like 20 minutes. (laughs) And then we get on the plane and then we sit there on the runway for 40 minutes. And Louis C.K. says, oh, really? 
What happened next? Did you fly through the air like a bird incredibly? Did you partake in the miracle of human flight? You are flying and it's amazing. Everybody on that plane should just be going, what the what? What? You are sitting on a chair in the sky. New York to LA in five hours. That used to take 30 years. And a bunch of you would die on the way. And some of you would have babies. And you'd be a different group once you got there. Now you watch a movie, take a dump in your home, right? I mean, this... Louis C.K. is just brilliant. And, and I, to me, the punchline of it all is sacred and secular. It's a lens that you see things through, right? And you can see the flying experience as a terrible dehumanizing experience. Or you can choose to see it for how amazing it, it truly is. And, it, and you can see all kinds of things in life that way. Yeah, I think that really that really puts it well to think of it as a lens. It really helps kind of clarify like, if you look at this as, if you see this as sacred and you recognize it, uh, I think that your whole perspective about all of the things around you w- would change. Uh, it feels like maybe we just we'd miss a lot of the good stuff. Maybe when we're separating yeah. separating yeah, yeah. things out, we don't see how incredible this flight is. We see how you know I'm a half an hour late, and how the world just... owes you a favor for some reason, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so think about this lens thing. Uh, Take, for example, maybe growing, going to the grocery store uh, Sunday afternoon. Maybe mm-hmm. you just left church. Maybe you just woke up. Uh, what's secular? What's sacred? Because if I'm being honest, I'm not sure most days I see the grocery store as sacred. Yeah. Okay. So me neither. But you just have to look at the cereal aisle. I mean, the cereal aisle. You have Cap'n Crunch with or without Crunch Berries. You've got your Fruity Pebbles. You've got Cocoa Puffs. You've got 27 different kinds of Cheerios. Of Cheerios, 27 kinds. It, it's it's a totally a Louis C.K. thing, right? It, we can be stomping around mad that they don't have the Count Chocula that we wanted. <laughs> Which, by the way, the finest of the chocolate cereals. But they don't have Count Chocula. But we can miss the 300 other kinds of cereal that are sitting right there. And And my wife will say that I was just complaining about something like this the other day. And I admit it. I don't always see my time at the grocery store. Maybe rarely see my time at the grocery store as an overtly spiritual or sacred time. But I had this experience years ago when I was with, when I was in high school. with uh, and, it, and it changed some of my viewpoints. Some of what uh, I see when I go to the grocery store. See, one of my friends had an exchange student from, from Russia. And that was a time in Russia when everything was changing. It was changing over from the Soviet Union, uh, from the communist system to the system that uh, they've grown into now. But everything was just changing. Everything was opening up. And in our news here in this country, it was filled with pictures of these bread lines. These lines that would stretch, it looked like for blocks and blocks, and and these stores that had very little by way of, of food at all, but very little bread. So my friend gets this exchange student from Russia and they're just running errands and they stop by the grocery store to pick up some stuff. She walks into the bread aisle and bursts into tears because the bread aisle is the same as the cereal aisle. It's just filled with, I mean, what kind of bread do you want? You want mm-hmm. English muffins, you want bagels, you want whole wheat, you want Wonder Bread. I mean, what what? And there's kind like six of, kinds of Wonder Bread. There, and there are six kinds of Wonder Bread, right? I mean, potato bread, you want French rolls, do you want, you, you get the picture. I mean, everything is there and 
she's just and she's just crying at the the sheer abundance of it all and then when you think about the process of getting the food to the store i mean there are people who grew the wheat and then shipped it off it was milled it was made into bread it was baked it was delivered to the store now you're going to take that home and you're going to smear butter and garlic over it because that's what you do with bread and then eat it with your pasta or whatever it is but there's all these steps that go into to what's at the store and what you are able financially to afford and what you're able to bring home it, it, it's abundance and it's in in and of itself a sacred experience if you look through that lens and, we, and I think we just we miss it all the time but every now and then we have to recognize and just step up, step aside, step out of ourselves if, if you can for a moment and just look at how amazing the things are and, and that everything is filled with, with, with blessings and, and this sacred experience if, if you can dare to wear that lens. So maybe everything is sacred. Maybe we've separated sacred from secular because the sacred moments seem to be so fleeting. Because we only grab on for a moment and it's hard to explain. Yet it's our movement into that awareness that we're actually looking for. What if it's about watching for those moments? As we're closing today, I invite you to consider how you're seeing the things around you. Whether you find yourself rooted in a religious tradition or not, consider how the things around you are sacred. They're filled with meaning and perhaps more often than not, we're simply being invited to see them. Thank you so much for joining us for our first ever Sandbox podcast. Again, a conversation about life and what's trending through a lens of faith and creativity. I'm Dave. And I'm Chris. Uh, and remember, we'd love to hear your comments on today's episode. So let us know what you think uh, via Twitter and Facebook at Sandbox Co-op or in the comments at sandboxcooperative.com. And be sure to stay tuned for our next episode in a few weeks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.